Hello and welcome to Starting Over with Shannon. This is a podcast about fresh starts, new chapters and embracing change and challenge to become a better version of ourselves and create a better world around us. I'm your host Shannon Jenkins and every week I'll be bringing you a different Starting Over story with tips on how to conquer life's difficulties to find greater joy, meaning and purpose. Hello and thank you for choosing to spend some of your precious time with me and my brilliant podcast guest Jeffrey Rediger today. This episode is a brilliant and an important one if I do say so myself. You guys know how I am honest, raw and always straight talking with you all. So when Jeffrey agreed to be on this podcast, I did my happy little dance moment. I was overjoyed. I love his book. You will totally hear that in the episode. But then came that moment of fear-based self-doubt with all of those thoughts of, oh, oh, geez, but am I actually good enough for this? Or can I keep up with this kind of conversation? Because You see, our guest is a highly accomplished man, a physician, psychiatrist, professor at Harvard Medical School. He has a master's from Princeton. His work has been featured by The Oprah Winfrey Show um, and Dr. Oz. He's got all these accolades, the acclaim, the education, and those limiting beliefs came in for me. But you know, we're all about smashing through those beliefs or limiting beliefs on the Starting Over podcast. And incidentally, that is one of the key pillars of health and wellness that we discuss on this episode, that of healing our identity, our limiting beliefs, our not enoughness, that hangover of childhood bumps and bruises and often deeper, longer lasting scars. But you know, what stood out to me in particular with Jeffrey was not the, all of his accomplishments and his certificates and his status. It was his heart, his humanity, and his humility, especially, which, quite frankly, is rare, rare, especially with somebody of his standing or position in society. And I've done 47 of these episodes now. And for a long time, I've been asking my guests to fill in an introductory form with some questions about the ways in which they relate to us starting over and so forth. And one question is, what would they like to promote on the podcast? They can share their links, their social media handles, books and so forth. Jeffrey completed that section by writing about a social cause and an idea that he wants to promote in society this has like never happened to me before and I literally had chills and felt even more excited to speak with him so what he actually wrote and what he wanted to promote was this he says the idea that some people might have or might have less or might be worth less lies at the root of all that is wrong in the world Every person brings something important and good into the world and deserves to be treated with utmost respect and dignity, no matter who they are or where they come from. 
Don't you just love that? I love that. Like I said, it was that chill moment where I felt so excited but I really think this episode is an important one and I don't say it lightly when I say how much his book was just brilliant really eye-opening it's all about spontaneous remission so these seemingly incurable diseases that people just overcome often to the incredulity of the medical establishment and Jeffrey has spent the last 15 or more years studying these particular cases and finding ways to extract the wisdom and knowledge out of this and the lessons learned that we can apply into our own lives in order to live happy healthy lives full of wellness and joy So as I said, this is a really, really important episode and I hope you all love it. If you do, please do share it with a friend and contact me over on Instagram or on TikTok or even by email. I love, love, love hearing from you all. But with no further ado, here is my conversation with Jeffrey. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Starting Over with Shannon. I am so excited for this conversation. Genuinely, I just said this before we got on everyone listening. I was like, I love this book. It's so good. <laughs> so I'm going to have a lot of a lot of that. But genuinely, I'm full of questions and really excited you're here to answer some of them. So thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me. So as you know, really a core theme of this podcast is starting over and ways in which people have surmounted adversity in their life to use that really as a conduit for personal transformation, whether that be towards a more spiritual path or self-development or just a total reshift and recalibration in terms of how they live their life. And Mm. the stories that you write about in your book, the examples you give illustrate that so perfectly. But of course, before we get into that, I want to hear a little bit about your story. And one thing that just really almost gave me chills this afternoon was towards the end of the book, you briefly talk about an experience you had in your younger years with your wife being involved in a car accident and her dying, you having to resuscitate her. There was a really moving synchronicity for me in that moment because I've spoken about this with with my podcast listeners before but last week we had our best friends and neighbors also involved in a similar situation with the father losing his wife and his 10-year-old daughter in a car accident and he oh. was the one also who found them and now we me and my partner were supporting them as much as we can, but just hearing that you had also been through that and the words that you shared in those pages, I I immediately highlighted it all. I sent a copy to the beautiful father involved in all of this. So mm. this is really where I would like to hear your story and how how that experience was for you and how did you manage the grief that I imagine that entailed? Yeah, well, I'm so sorry for your friends. That's devastating. And, you know, you're talking about starting over, right? And that was a starting over for me. I've needed to restart my life a few times. And I think, honestly, you know, the spiritual teachers often say that at the very core of the universe is this dialectic of we die in order to live. We go down in order to go up. We need to be willing to be last in order to be first. And 
And that's what death often is, whether it's the death of a physical body of someone we care about or giving up the false self or the death of the false self so that a more authentic self can be born for someone who has a terrible illness and then time begins to go by um, when a person is not spending so much of their time taking care of the needs of others and they begin to be willing to take up space for themselves and to honor the the truth and the dignity and the value of what they bring into the world and then the trajectory of their illness begins to change as they heal so there's a lot to this give you a little background about myself i was born into a family. My father came out of the Amish tradition, which is extremely conservative. And when I was two years old, we moved out of that community. I was raised on a farm. My parents left outwardly, but not so much inwardly. So I grew up without much access to things like TV or radio or store-bought clothing much of the time. I was living at home in one religious world, but then going to school where science was valued and where we were studying things outside of the Bible and learning about social studies and reading literature, all of which was highly suspect at home and deeply yeah. concerning. And so I had a lot of, I started at a young age, I think, trying to reconcile very different worldviews. And I was rebellious as a young teen, I just trying to, as a very violent family that I was in and religion was used to justify a lot of violence and to support it. So I left for college and that continued to introduce me to a very different world. Jane was my fiance. We met in college. She was, was actually the first person I ever really dated. I'd had one date in college, no dates in high school. So I was young, I think, developmentally. And so we became very close over the course of a year and a half. And then during our sophomore year, spring break, we were on our way to Connecticut from Chicago to spend spring break in Connecticut. And we were in a car accident when a truck jackknifed across the road in front of us. And we hit the icy bridge that the truck had lost control on and then hit the back end of the truck and the driver and Jane were killed. I took Jane out of the car and did CPR on her for a few hours waiting for, because the ambulances couldn't get in, the chopper couldn't get in because of the wow. quick change in weather. And, and then I found out later in the emergency room that night that my grandfather a, a rancher out in Montana had died unexpectedly that day of a heart attack. These On were the really the only day. same day. Wow. Yep. March 6th. And uh, these are the only two people I felt cared about me. And so it was a devastating loss for me. I had struggled a lot with religion up to that point because of the conservatism of it and the violence associated with it. And badly wanted to become a um, atheist. And I, in the context of did you never with... Did you never secretly think of yourself as an atheist in your mind before that point? Well, I think I was under the spell of the religion that I'd grown up in, in some ways. And it was still the child appropriation of the religion of my parents and the religion of my subculture. And so it was not truly my uh, 
faith, I think, in some ways. I think in choosing to feel the grief of losing Jane and my grandfather, a lot of feelings came up from the past that were unresolved and that I'd been suppressing. Yeah. Um, and and so in dealing with those, I badly wanted, to, you know, I was this angry, hurt, confused kid, basically. And and atheism seemed like a path of liberation in some ways. But the things that gave me pause were these strange synchronicities or events that occurred around Jane's death. For example, uh, a couple months before the accident, my best friend in college had given me this book called A Severe Mercy. It's a book written around letters between C.S. Lewis and Sheldon Van Aken, who had been a student of C.S. Lewis at Oxford. And Sheldon had fallen in love, had married this woman, and they'd had this very close relationship. But it was lovely in some ways, but very enmeshed in some ways. And the long and short of it is that she died. And in the series of letters between Sheldon and C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis eventually says, this was a severe mercy for you. This was an awful thing that happened, but also a mercy to you in the sense that it gave you back your authentic self and gave you a kind of equality of spirituality that you just simply had not had prior to this degree of suffering and life transformation. So my friend David had strongly encouraged me. He said, you got to read this book. So I read the book, and then Jane started to read the book on the day of the accident that morning while we were driving from Chicago to Connecticut. And I had to take that bloodstained copy out of her hands when I took her out of the car. And then the next bizarre thing that happens is that here we are on Highway 80, this major highway in Northeast Pennsylvania, away from, you know, long ways away from everyone, rural part of the state. The first car that stops at the scene of the accident turns out they were the close family friends, the best family friends of my friend David, uh, who, you know, they didn't live in Pennsylvania. They lived up in New Hampshire. There's no reason why they would be there right now, but it's just um, strange that they found out what college I had come from and they said, Oh, do you know David Strodel? So I was like, really? You know? So, and so that made no sense. Right. Uh, so for someone trying to become an atheist, that's an uncomfortable experience. So, and then this series of other things happened because I was putting myself through college and devastated after the deaths of Jane and my grandfather and trying to work two or three jobs and deal with classes and my grief and, and, struggling and then had some events where people who knew nothing about my financial situation just on the last day when I either had to have the money or I had to drop out of school, two checks came in the mail, just people just saying, you know, we have no idea. Uh, we just wanted to give you a little money, let you know we care about you. And it was just enough to stay in college. Mm -hmm. And so you just can't make this kind of stuff up. Yeah. And so I ended up going to seminary at Princeton a few years later, just trying to understand, you know, what's, yeah. what's going on here. And then I walk into the Princeton seminary campus. I'm, uh, I'm asking, okay, is there anyone reading Kierkegaard, a uh, scholar in Kierkegaard? Is there anyone doing work in psychology and spirituality? It turns out there's this 
guy named James Loader, who's a world-class expert in both of those areas. Not, it's not like two professors were doing this stuff. And he had written a book uh, called The Transforming Moment, which starts off talking about his own accident experience and how that changed his own ways of thinking as a theologian and psychologist. And he just said it's just writes about how complicated it is to become a truly spiritual person when you're already a tenured professor of theology in a seminary. <laughs> so, and he, he just became this incredible mentor for me and completely changed everything about my way of thinking and healing. Okay. So, yeah. We'll speak to that a little bit on the healing front. So I can hear that it shook up the uh, wannabe atheist, but, <laughs> but in terms of you actually healing yourself from the tragedy that you faced there? I mean, what was involved in that for you? Well, I think a lot. And I think there's, it's, there's some things you revisit later after you think you've healed them. I think the life is kind of an upward spiral of revisiting old topics sometimes, but in a more refined form. Um, Isn't that I think, a Carl Jung idea? An yeah, kind spiral? of, right. Yeah. Right, Yes. Yeah, Carl Jung certainly studied healing at a deep level, for sure. A great Swiss physician, one of the greatest, sitting on the shores of Geneva, I think, doing his stone masonry and artwork and yeah. writing. Um, but yeah, uh, I think seminary helped me get on a path of healing intellectually in some ways. You know, James Loder, my mentor, was writing books with physicists at that point. And so I'm going really deep into the structure of intellectual, um, the basis of Cartesian and Newtonian ways of thinking and how we bring modern science and different disciplines next to each other in a way that allows psychology and spirituality and medicine to stand on their own terms and not be reduced from one to the other, for example. But Intellectually, that started an important process, but emotionally, I was slower to catch on to some of this. I think in more recent years, beginning to engage the deeper parts of my own psyche to begin to understand what trauma is at a deeper level and what it means to heal, what it means to heal our false beliefs and begin to experience the value that that each of us, every person in the world brings into the world, the unrepeatable uniqueness that we each bring and to value that, to not apologize for it, to address the shadow side of that, uh, that's yeah. often related to trauma and to begin to see and experience that in others. Uh, that's been a path more of trauma education. Um, internal family systems work has been a, a path I found really useful in that way. Uh, it's different than most psychotherapies in the way it sees what's right with the self and helps build from that, from the internal somatic or the wisdom of our own bodies and authentic selves rather than depending on a therapist to heal us, perhaps. That's been the journey of more recent uh, yeah. recent time for me. Well, I'm, I ask that also because you mentioned in your book the importance of asking about emotional nutrition. You know, not only right. realizing how key emotions really are. And I wonder genuinely, I'm more emotional based as a person, I think. You know, my approach is I, I feel first and then I kind of think later. And I've that's meant that I'm very sensitive and often receptive to 
even the healing techniques and really opening up in that way. But then I, I've often wondered, and I work on the intellectual side of things there and uh. discipline and everything else that comes with that. But I've wondered with the people who really do have that strong intellect and mind, and then of course, all of the accolades and the achievements and everything, the big stamp from society that tells you you're on the right path because of the the intellect, whether that in some respects could even be a hindrance in one's own development or healing. I think that's a really important point. I think it has been for me. I have, according to what the world says, you know, some big positions, some big affiliations. I, I did my chief residency at Harvard in the Victims of Violence program, so I thought I was very well trained in trauma. And yet I look back and there's so much emotionally that I didn't deal with in the course of my training in becoming a physician and even a psychiatrist. I think a lot of that's because the intellectual world I live in supports the intellectual world, but doesn't root itself enough in the emotional world or in knowing how to provide adequate emotional nutrition or even knowing how to access the somatic wisdom of our bodies. Yeah. Yeah, I it's I'm embarrassed to say that's been an issue. Yeah. Well, it's you have bucket loads of humility and that is certainly something that I think stood out to me initially in communication with you and also is so clear in your book as well. The kind of mm. humility and the humanity you bring and I genuinely think that that is quite rare, especially amongst people who have had all of those achievements and and so on. What would you say are some other key moments in your life, looking back, that have really steered you down another path? I think part of that might be knowing I'm kind of a farm kid at heart in some ways. I now live in the liberal world of Boston and the Massachusetts I'm in a intellectually vigorous climate, but I've seen how much ideas haven't healed me <laughs> or those that I work with. And that in a, you know, in our country, in the United States, we are so riven apart by misperceptions of other people politically and otherwise. And we create all these hierarchies in our heads that value some people more than others. And that's, I think, at the base of what's causing so much pain and suffering in our world because these hierarchies, hierarchies aren't real. We're all people behind the masks that we wear and we deserve the same dignities and to experience what's right about us and about each other. And our country's a mess around that right now. Um, former President Trump just announced last night that he's running again for president. <laughs> oh, the joys. <laughs> I cried a little bit when I was I was living in Paris at the time studying university and I remember I had all of these Americans come over to like watch the election between Hillary Clinton at the time and and right. Donald Trump and us having these posters around and me just being there like crying at the state yes. of the world in all my youthful idealism. <laughs> yeah, it, there's some real sad things going on in the world and some massive challenges to, you know, I think people are afraid in times of change and our better nature and better parts aren't always being reinforced in the world right now in the time of uncertainty in our institutions. We're, we're losing trust in many of our institutions right now, and it's a time of transition. 
Yeah, totally. There's there's nothing like, at least in my experience so far and the people that I've spoken with on this podcast, there seems to be something in facing a traumatic experience in life or some form of hardship that can really break somebody down, but also lead to some breakthroughs that they never thought possible for them. You know, when you're talking about this false hierarchy, this ego-based superiority or inferiority, because it can also go on the other side, um, right. it, you know, a lot of that can be really shaken up through a sense of adversity. And that's why I think that's even, I'm doing what I'm doing. It's like looking much deeper, the much deeper layers. And something I found really no. refreshing actually in your book and like praise being a medic and talking about this too, because actually on my first interview where I spoke with a doctor who actually became very disillusioned with the profession and she left because she was frustrated with the fact that there was a continuous treatment of symptoms rather than root causes. And she felt yes. like she was always band-aiding over something and never fully healing or helping somebody to heal in that way and she yes. left and like you speak about that a lot in your book too and say that spontaneous remissions can give us a clue into root causes of things so could you speak a little bit to what spontaneous remission is in the first place and then also why that could give us a bit more of a clue into Causes. Yeah, I think it's so important how you're framing things. I, so let me try coming at this from a couple of different ways. I think spontaneous remission, uh, we are taught in medical school that when an illness just disappears, especially an incurable illness, that when it disappears, that's called spontaneous remission. And we're taught that that's a fluke with no medical or scientific value. If you are on the spiritual or religious side, we call these events a miracle or spiritual healing. From my view, all of these terms are black boxes that have never been unpacked with the tools of science. The word spontaneous in this sense means without cause. Can you imagine a more unscientific way of thinking than to assume that something doesn't have a cause and therefore is not worthy of examination? That's just, everything has a cause. It's just that we're not asking we the questions. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so I, one of the, my pieces here is to try to advocate that we look into these events that have medical evidence because there are really important reasons why these people are getting better and these patterns replicate themselves over and over and over again when you start to study these individuals. So there's that. Uh, you'd said a piece uh, also about trauma. What is it you said about that? About, about uh, like how that could be a glimpse into oh, yes. healing root causes, not just the symptoms. Yeah, I empathize with the person who came on your podcast and was disillusioned with medicine, I personally am starting to face my own complicity in this issue. I have been working quietly with patients one-on-one -on -one for many years, but I'm just starting to recognize I have been complicit with larger systems of injustice where patients are treated in terms of symptoms instead of causes. And when causes can be treated, we have a responsibility when people are interested to help them begin finding those pathways. So there's a lot of reasons why medicine and psychiatry only treat symptoms instead of causes. And I am realizing the need to take a more public position on this and do this really differently, not just 
one-on-one with patients, but also in terms of addressing the shadow side of the institutions. Yeah. I mean, why do you think that is? I've heard at least that sometimes medics, they don't see that as being their role. It would often be put on to politicians or educators. You know, we need to get into education. And I think that that is necessary too. You know, we need mm-hmm. to start yes. educating children on the importance of self-care and relationships and nutrition and things that are often absent in standard curriculum and syllabus. But I wonder in the from the medical perspective whether like that's just not our role. We're here to make sure that this doesn't lead to death or drastic health outcomes, but not necessarily going through the layers before that. Yeah, I think there's a lot to this. Uh, I think the process of training to become a physician is a very powerful socialization process. And so you have these well-intentioned, idealistic uh, young people who go into medicine and uh, get trained and socialized to the point that we don't even ask common sense questions any longer about uh, what it takes to heal. So by and large, doctors don't ask about what it takes to heal an illness. We don't even study that by and large. We are trained to make a diagnosis and start a medication, and that's as far as it goes. I just got off Zoom just before our meeting with Jill Bolte-Taylor, who is this world-renowned neuroscientist. She was actually working here at McLean many years before I came here. She was a neuroscientist who had a stroke at age 36 that took out most of her left brain. She had a full recovery from her stroke, and she gave the first TED Talk that went viral. So her talk about her stroke recovery has been seen many millions of times. She wrote a perennially best-selling book about her stroke recovery and about how she had this full recovery called A Stroke of Insight. She has been named by Time Magazine as one of the most important people of 2008. She had Oprah, who was doing a movie on her life. She Anything she touches is this amazing thing about stroke recovery. When she and I met, she said, I've been waiting for you for 22 years. She said, in 22 years, not a single doctor has ever asked how I had a full recovery from my stroke. (laughs) Did you get the 20 years of frustration just (laughs) lobbed onto you in that moment? Yeah. So here you think we will be all over this. This is the perfect person to begin trying to understand that healing can be possible. And what does that look like? And what does it require? No interest. (laughs) And, And so every person I've studied in 19 years of doing this research with people who have medical evidence for recovery from incurable illnesses, not a single person I've studied has ever had a doctor get interested in how they got better. The good Why? doctors say, the good doctors say, well, whatever you're doing, keep doing it because it's working, but they're not curious. <laughs> so, yeah, man. And so, and the other, other doctors can get irritated. They might fire the patient. They might get, they don't want to hear about it. they get irritated or angry. I mean, it's... I mean, what do you think is really informing that? I guess it's multidimensional, but what do you really think is at the root of that? I, I think it's a lot of things. I think that the socialization process of becoming a physician is very powerful. And so you get pushed into this way of thinking that excludes other ways of knowing. So you end up opening up certain parts of your brain and shutting down other parts of your brain. I think that the trifecta of pharmaceutical companies which play such a massive role in our education, the way that interacts with the academics who are 
basically paid to get certain results or to sign off on results. And the way the interaction of these two institutions interact with, say, government and lobbyists and the recommendations by government bodies, that trifecta is true up to a point. I mean, I prescribe medications to treat symptoms temporarily. I think medicines can have a life-saving role at times. They are very important, just like vaccinations can be really important for COVID. But it's also not pure science. There's a spin science to it aspect or a business yes. interest. And so that that is a very deep hole that's often not examined adequately by those of us in medicine. And we don't pay attention to that shadow side. And so it took me years of listening to these people with remarkable recoveries to begin understanding, oh, yeah, I was just di- I was just taught to make a diagnosis, start a medication. And there's so many factors that cause a doctor's time to feel limited and to feel like they're standing with their hand on the doorknob waiting to leave the room when the patient wants to tell what the what was really going on for them, what the story of the illness is. Doctors are taught to exclude the story, which frankly holds the clues to what healing is going to entail. And the doctor is taught to exclude the story to simply focus on the underlying signs and symptoms in order to make a proper diagnosis. And by missing the story, we miss the opportunity to figure out what would help this person heal. Yeah. Can you tell us a story or two to really illustrate this idea of what a spontaneous remission is and why it can be so important to know about? Yeah. Let me just preface this by saying that, you know, I was taught in med school that that our illnesses are mostly genetic and that once we map the genome, we will be able to begin figuring out how to heal these illnesses. That turns out to be false. We now know that 85 to 90% of the illnesses from which people suffer are lifestyle-based. Really? They, yeah, and that gene, and, that, and all the major killers are lifestyle-based. Heart disease, diabetes, cancer, autoimmune illness, lung disease, these are related to our lifestyle and genes we now know can be turned on and off by lifestyle and they can be turned on off turned on and off by the quality of emotional or spiritual nutrition in our lives by the quality of physical nutrition and foods we put in our lives by by the quality and truth or false beliefs that we have our experience of ourselves by the quality of the relationships we have. These things play a massive role in what genes get activated and what genes are turned on and off. So the tragedy is that most of our illnesses, including most of the major killers, we treat as if they're incurable illnesses when in fact they're not. So yeah, let me tell you a few stories. I begin cured telling the story of Claire, for example. And I start off with her story because she felt like every woman to me. She's this really wonderful motherly lady who was diagnosed by biopsy in 2008 with pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer is a terrible illness. It's usually diagnosed too late to treat in an effective way. It's usually a form of cancer that has a brutal, painful quick end. And she had the worst kind, pancreatic adenocarcinoma. So this is 
a very personal and professional journey, this whole effort to study these illnesses, because I had read so many articles in theology and psychology and medicine at that point. And I was so tired of opinions of with everyone disagreeing with each other. I needed the empirical evidence of what is it that brings about or is associated with healing at the deepest levels. And if a person can recover from an incurable illness and there's medical evidence for their recovery, then I thought maybe that's something that my skeptical, confused, you know, that little kid in me that's still really trying to figure out what's true um, can trust. So uh, a story like Claire's was such a, a beautiful journey for me. She was a common sense lady who valued science and medicine and had spent a life following disorders. But when she was diagnosed with this cancer and told that she had a matter of months to live, she decided that she wanted to spend the time that she had left finishing well and spending time with people she loved rather than spending much of her time in dark or gloomy doctor's offices with other people who were dying. She was going to die anyway. Pancreatic cancer treatment didn't offer anything that was going to do anything except maybe prolong her life for a few months. So she decided to not pursue surgery or chemotherapy or radiation and just try to focus on quality of life for the time she had left and on finishing well. And she began to make a lot of changes with her life. She worked through books about how to prepare for death. She began to address relationships where she wanted to forgive people who she had harbored some hurt towards and had felt rejected by. Uh, she began to eliminate processed foods from her diet slowly. She read an article that said salt is bad for the pancreas, so she got rid of salt, that sort of thing. And just very humanly went through this process. Um, the biopsy was in 2008. Then she had a CT of the abdomen in 2013 for unrelated reasons. And her doctor came out of the room and said, your cancer is gone. And then they thought well, there must have been a wrong diagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> but there was a biopsy proving that it had been the right diagnosis. Her doctors didn't know what to think. And uh, some of them were irritable. <laughs> But things continue to unfold for her, um, and it's a beautiful journey of healing her immune system, healing her nutrition, healing her identity and her deeper beliefs uh, so that she was much less vulnerable to thinking there was something not good enough about who she was or in some way that she didn't measure up as a human being. So it's a, it was a beautiful story for me to be exposed to. Yeah. And I think one thing that I read in your book was you spoke about how in a lot of TV or radio shows is often a focus on people questioning whether this is real and yeah. never really asking the questions about, so what, basically? What is the implication? Yeah. Why does this matter? What are the lessons that we can extract from these cases to learn how to live better. And I so resonated with that because it's almost, my partner's actually an expert in near-death experiences, so noetic sciences. Oh. And, it's oh, a similar, really? and it's a similar thing with him in that he says, well, d is this real? Is this a real phenomenon? Is there such thing as a soul or conscious? Like they're important questions, but so much that we can learn is actually how to live well now. And I, so resonated. I thought there was a similar link there in terms of 
the lessons we can learn. Yeah, well, you know, I really appreciate what you're saying. And it makes me think about the role of trauma again that we've talked about and the role of finding out that maybe a situation or a relationship wasn't what we thought it was. Um, Leonard Cohen said that we're all cracked so that the light can get in. Yeah, I think it was. And yes. And and you know, I think I think I'm starting to realize that in two different ways. First of all, we are cracked. And we're all a little bit crazy in our own ways. And I'm realizing that that's okay. And we can work on healing that. But we also do really well to let that crack of the ego break us in a way that the light can get in. I also am starting to realize rather later than I wish I would have learned, but but that that those cracks in us cause us to need others in a way that's very beautiful and not in a codependent way, but in a way that we can really enjoy and understand the importance of having others be intimate with us and to share our cracks with them in a way that's safe and vulnerable. And again, knowing how to choose safe individuals is a big thing. But those cracks and our efforts to grow towards wholeness, we need each other. In part, that's the beauty of us needing each other because we aren't all completely whole in ourselves yet. And It makes me think of a previous interview recently with somebody else who lost his wife and he said, somehow the whole experience was laced with beauty. And I didn't fully understand that. I could imagine, but I hadn't really seen it. And then I went to this funeral for the family that I was speaking about. And because it really shook the community, there was about 300 people who showed up and it was beautiful. People were openly grieving, but people were openly loving too. And there, and I really understood at that moment what that what the laced with beauty actually meant. Wow. So, something that you share, you write in the book about whether it comes from a therapeutic session, a loving relationship, deep meditation, focused imagery, love touches and heals something that medications can't touch. I loved that. Can you speak to that a little bit, the role or power of love in healing? Yeah. I, I think I think there's something in our deeper self or soul that is scanning the environment all the time. Every time we walk in a room or every time we see somebody, we're looking for an experience of unconditional love in some way. And ultimately that has to come from within as something we learn how to provide for ourselves without qualification. And that also addresses and can work with the shadow side of who we are and the shadow side of others. But that need goes so deep in us, I believe. Um, and the people I study who heal whether they healed in 10 years or very quickly, that is very relevant to how the healing occurs at the deepest level. Jill Bolte-Taylor, who I mentioned, this neuroscientist who had a full recovery from a stroke, writes about the same kinds of things that the people that I studied talk about over and over and over again, their eyes light up and they want to help me understand the role of unconditional love in experiencing this. Jill's brain, she lost her left brain, but she didn't lose her right brain, which lives in the eternal present. And it was just the unconditional love 
without the criticizing presence of the left brain. And that played such a big role in helping rebuild a new healthy brain, but also a new healthy identity that was less susceptible to judging herself and criticizing herself or feeling not good enough in some way and was able to be reparented by her mother as she healed in some ways and then learned to reparent herself with a less criticizing yeah and self. this really this really speaks to the fourth pillar that you describe in the book doesn't it Yes. Let's go through a little bit these four pillars of health that you outline in your book. So healing your immune system, your nutrition, your stress response, and your identity. Let's start with immune system. Yeah, that's really big in a time of the pandemic, right? <laughs> so so I, I think Western cultures have spent many years, I think medicine is kind of in an early stage, and we are now beginning to transition to the next stage of medicine, a new era, where we actually study how people heal, where we study things like the microbiome, which is about healing the immune system, since 80% of our immune system resides in our gut, and what it means to create a healthy microbiome. That is about healing the immune system and about healing the chronic inflammation in our bodies is such a big part of the way we design Western bodies with the highly inflammatory foods that we tend to consume and the highly inflammatory lifestyles that we tend to create and foster in our environments and in our frenzied, stressed families, for example. So I tell the story of the immune system this way, and I know we have to be brief here, the immune system heals a lot more than just infections, for example. The immune system takes care not only of eliminating pathogens like viruses or bacterial infections, but also eliminates the mutating cells that become cancer if they're not caught early. Uh, the immune system is also what's going on in most of the illnesses from which people suffer. Heart disease is a disease of chronic inflammation. It's an autoimmune illness where the immune system that is attacking the body that it was sworn to protect, and that's what autoimmune means. It means self-attacking. So heart disease, diabetes, cancer, many autoimmune diseases. These are all autoimmune diseases where the body's immune system, these brilliant cells and cell subtypes are attacking the body instead of the problem. One way in which the immune system does this is through chronic inflammation. Chronic inflammation is caused by our relationship with stress. It's caused by inflammatory foods. For example, over 100 years ago, the average person in the United States consumed four pounds of sugar a year. The average American now consumes 154 pounds of sugar a year. That is such a high load that the body wasn't built to manage or metabolize. These little sharp sugar granules go floating through the bloodstream, causing little cuts on the insides of the arteries. And the uh, beautiful immune system comes in, tries to repair those cuts and creates little scabs in doing so. But then after a time, if you keep putting these inflammatory foods like sugar into your body, and I'm not against sugar, I'm against the quantity of sugar that our culture tends to consume. 
these little cuts and then the repair of these cuts cause create scab upon scab upon scab, which then years later we call atherosclerosis, and that's heart disease. So those kinds of mechanisms have been undetected by decades of medicine because doctors have just specialized in body parts and have looked at the body part instead of the person. We've looked at the part instead of standing back and seeing the wholeness of the individual and seeing the forest for the trees. And I'm all for body parts. But, uh, I mean, it's it's brilliant that we can specialize and go so deep into the heart uh, with as a cardiologist or into the brain as a neurologist or a psychiatrist or into the gut as a gastroenterologist. But if we don't do the second step of standing back and looking at the wholeness of the person, at the striving and stresses and traumas, for example, or the need of the living human being, then we're missing everything. And so we need both steps, both the parts, both the forest, as well as the trees. Yeah. So then, because this all linked to the idea of taking the lessons from those who have had a successful remission and clues as to how we can live a better life. Now with this immune system idea in mind, what could somebody do listening to take better control of their immune health? Well, I think in medicine, we often teach patients to be compliant patients and to assume a very passive role. The people I study they weren't the compliant patients. Sometimes they were a bit of a troublemaker. <laughs> They're the ones who ask questions. They're the ones who fire their doctors and go find somebody who actually cares about them. <laughs> They're the ones who take responsibility for putting together a team that can help them go where they need to go. And And so they're the more democratized version of a new era in medicine. And what I love about millennials, for example, is that they are much less willing to just be passive about anything. They're much more multidisciplinary in ways of thinking naturally, and they're much less beholden to the empires that have been constructed by these old ways of thinking that have nothing to do with their health and vitality. And they want to focus on well-being and getting yes. a life. Yes. So, so You're making me feel proud to be a millennial. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you guys are the ones that are going to bring about the future that we desperately need. So hold your peace and don't be compl- subvert the dominant reality (laughs) yes fist pump (laughs) yeah so immune health stress response let's speak about stress responses we know how how, well i say we know generally the average person knows that stress equals bad some good stress to give you some motivation and some energy but also leads to a whole host of problems, health problems, and yet we're in highly strung out, stressed out society with a lot of competing roles and tasks to do. It feels never any like stress in many respects feels at an all time high and yeah. our ability to cope in some respects. Well, I'm not sure how that shifted. Obviously the focus on wellness and so on, people are trying to take better control, but I don't feel so hopeful when I hear stories of people signing off their 40 hour max work week because their investment bank told them that they had to pull an all-nighter and that's applauded like you know so i think culturally there are so many things that are going wrong there that 
it can feel hard for people to say, okay, I'm going to reduce my stress or better cope with the stress when there are obviously the structural constraints yes. that can pose problems. But in terms of the agency that people have and why managing stress matters. Yeah. I mean, some kinds of stress are good, right? We don't want to eliminate all stresses because we may have children that we want to take care of, and that can be stressful. Or we need to go into work, and sitting in rush hour is just part of what it is. Or we have an aging parent that needs our help or some loved one. And and so I think sometimes it is about removing stress or removing ourselves from stress, and other times it's learning to grow or change our relationship with stress. Running a marathon can be stressful for one person, but it could be a good stress for the next person because it helps them reach into their higher self and expand their understanding of what they're capable of. I cannot emphasize enough, though, that there are times when we are experiencing toxic stress that we need to leave. I tell the story of Jan in Cured, how she had had chronic fatigue syndrome for decades and was in end-stage chronic fatigue. I mean, it was in her brain, in her heart, in her kidneys, in her liver. When she went to this healing center, was shocked that she got better, went back to Idaho, where she'd lived for years. She looked so different that people didn't recognize her when she walked down the street. As she had this big change of identity, consistent with the fourth pillar. She changed her name to be consistent with this new identity and experience of who she was. But she went back to a marriage and a job that she experienced as toxic and soon was ill again, went back to this healing center, recovered again, and realized, wow, there is something about the way I am related to this marriage and this job that is toxic for me. So she left both of those. And that's a messy very messy situation. It took a lot of courage. And, you know, initially she lived with some real uncertainty about, should I leave? Should I stay? People were actually upset with her because she was making really different decisions. She wasn't this compliant person that people had known her to be. She was, was she standing up for herself. <laughs> right. She was standing up for herself. <laughs> and so, but she did eventually leave. And now she's been disease free for over 30 years and is happy and healthy and has had such a different life and healing of identity. But she respected herself enough to begin not taking care of everyone else exclusively and also began to focus on what she needed as her as a human being. I think what surprised me reading about Jan's story, she had a lump in her neck, right? Mm. Yeah. Was the denial of that for so long. Yeah. And I think so many people find themselves in that situation because in their list of priorities, that that's quite low until it becomes so problematic that they go, oh no, what have I done? I just think how many people even listening to this are like, I've had that you know, weird pain in my back, or I'm carrying a sort of sub feeling of anxiety in my in my stomach, but it's not so desperate that I just I just get on with it. But really, I think would you say to those people like, listen earlier, listen to those, those clues yeah. that your body is giving you that your mind that your soul is giving you? Yeah, I, I think it's unconscionable that in medicine and psychiatry, we don't help people listen to their bodies, the bodies are sending us messages. The body keeps the score. The body tells the story for those of us who have ears to listen. The soul 
I, I believe actually now, after listening to these stories for so many years, it's upturned every so many of the assumptions I learned, not only in medicine and psychiatry, but even in seminary, that we are these invisible souls or selves walking around and our bodies, I think, are instruments or metaphors of something a deeper part of us is trying to learn. And so we need to listen to our bodies with love and listen to their wisdom and begin to ask, is my body trying to say something? Gaber Mate is this wonderful book, When Your Body Says No. And I'm telling you, our clinics, our hospitals are full of people whose, whose illnesses are very much related to not knowing how to say no and respect what their body and their lives need yeah. for a life that's truly worth living. And I guess this moves somewhat into your fourth pillar with beliefs, you know, even this idea of not not being able to say no, like realizing there is so, I mean, you can speak to this, obviously, even with your age, but have you witnessed more of a development and general acceptance of the idea of how how instrumental our thoughts are and our beliefs are to our physical health? Yes. Our conscious and our unconscious beliefs and thoughts, I believe, are huge. I don't believe that we can think our way into healing in some ways, because I think that's way too simple. We all have true and false beliefs, conscious and unconscious beliefs, and it's the healing of these that is so fundamentally related to what these people I study have experienced. But yeah, our thoughts and our beliefs are huge. So speak to that a little bit more about why that is such a key pillar that you wanted to to write about in the book and also why that's so key with the spontaneous remission and the the really transformative changes that you had seen some of these people you had interviewed or your clients that they had had. Yeah, I think this is the most difficult area to study, right? It's also the most important pillar. And this is the place, I mean, people will tell me about how they changed their nutrition and how they healed their relationship with stress or their immune system, but where they really set up and get a light in their eyes and say, this is why I'm so grateful for this illness is because of this fourth pillar where they experienced a healing of their identity and of their value in a way that they have such a different quality of life and well-being than they ever would have had without the illness. So it's the most difficult area to understand and get my head around, but it's also, it's the most important. So what would be some examples of a transformation, what somebody had gone through? Some of the people that I studied ended up having such a deep change in their identity and beliefs that they changed their name to kind of catch up or reflect their new experience of themselves. Uh, Jan, for example, as we mentioned, she just became such a different person, focused on her own health and well-being instead of taking care of everyone else's perceived needs, that she wasn't even recognized when she walked down the street any longer, had just lost a lot of weight, um, had, and it wasn't like she was trying to lose weight. She just didn't need this insulation of the weight around her any longer to keep herself feeling safe. She felt safe in who she was. She had been able to heal a lot of the trauma that she'd experienced, for well, example. Yeah. So I imagine that's really key, like the piece on trauma and cultivating deep, true self-worth 
and things yeah. maybe relinquishing fears that they had been immobilized by so much in their life setting boundaries with other people being more yep. careful about who they associate with perhaps or eliminating people that have negative influence over them like is that all of the like mindset work and trauma healing body healing too that yes. is a part of that yes absolutely it's a huge piece of that yeah well, you definitely had uh, two big ticks from Gable Mate and Vessel van der Kolk with their endorsement of your book. I noticed there two of oh, yeah, right. names in tra trauma healing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm going to move into a final fast few questions now before we wrap up, Jeffrey. And the first thing I wanted to ask is, is there something that you used to believe that you no longer believe? Yeah. I no longer believe that compliance. I think there's so many ways in which we are trained and socialized into living lives of being compliant in families and in institutions. I think finding a way to celebrate all of who we are in a more whole way, feeling comfortable having all of our feelings. I was raised in a religious culture where anger was thought to be a problem, for example, or that lots of feelings were thought to be a problem. And I think learning to accept all of the range of feelings that we have and begin to interrogate what those feelings reflect, where they reside in our bodies, maybe what they're telling us about what our bodies and our deeper selves need. I think a belief that has received a lot of work on my part is this idea that there's something that I guess realizing how precious and unrepeatable and unique every one of us are and that all of us bring a light into the world that nobody else can bring. And it's not like some people have more of that light than others, that all of us are behind all the different masks that we wear, behind all the different false hierarchies that we set up that can pair ourselves to each other and place each other on this hierarchy. These are false hierarchies. All of us have value and finding a way to create institutions that are more consistent with those kinds of beliefs and where I'm less complicit with some of those institutions is becoming something that is taking up more of my attention, attention these days. I find it very, uh, comforting to know that somebody who does have because you do have a power and an influence even from the status that you occupy in society and I think it's so great to be able to use that for doing good because there's you know mm. I imagine for you there have been moments where there have been fears even fear of perhaps what mm -hmm. your medical peers would think of the mm -hmm. work that you're doing if that's not accepted yep. and mm -hmm. you will have things that demand courage but just knowing that actually the voice that you have can make such a strong impact. And I, yeah. I love the messages you share, share. So totally on the mark. Thank you. Thank you. Second, what is one change that you would wish to see in the world? Well, it's my belief that most of the problems in the world that create so much suffering and also are filling our hospitals and our clinics are related to this idea that we've been walking around this entire hour of, about this idea that some people matter less. That causes so much suffering in the world. And it, it's these are issues of our society and perceptions that are both invisible and visible. 
And that's become a real passion for me as I begin to look at what my healing is requiring, what the healing of my patients is requiring, what the healing of our institutions is going to require, why we are losing faith in institutions that are deficit-based. I mean, even, you know, medicine is all about the disease model. It's not about what's right about people. Psychology has spent the last number of decades going deep into the deficits of childhood, but not into what's right about each person. And so people live in the dark cave of the past rather than knowing how to create a present well-being. Mm -hmm. Psychiatry has been all about neurochemical defects and doesn't go much beyond that too much of the time. And our government and religions have been about that too, emphasizing in religion, original sin instead yes. of image of God, for example. And these are all deficit-based models. And what's exciting is that we are on this opening of a new era that where people want to be seen for what's right about them and unique about them. And so oh, things that have been in the closet for centuries are now coming out of the closet and we're having a chance to see that disabilities are not disabilities. They're about being human, for example, and such new ways of being born and our institutions need to change at a deep level to be representative of who we are now. And thank God for the millennials. <laughs> so just uh, to sum it up, because if I have, I'm a millennial and I'm going to be listening to this, I'm taking notes. I'm taking notes. So deficit model to what model? <laughs> to models that are built on what's right and special about every human being. We've got to make yeah. that snappier, Jeffrey. We've got to make it snappier. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm an academic, I'll get back so to I'll you. have to... <laughs> it's not marketable enough. We'll come back to it. Our social media generation, it's got to have a bit more pizzazz. I'll get back to you. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and a final message. So what is one last message that you share, want to share with our listeners who want to live well, live better. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of this woman who had breast cancer and in the context of her recovery, she quit being this meek, mild person who everyone liked. In the context of healing, she became this saucy woman who would swear, you know, she was willing to take up space in the world. She was willing to say what really is going on here from her perspective. And I think that was really important for her healing. So I think be willing to honor the dignity of what you bring in the world and take up some space in the world. Be grateful for all the things that uh, you bring and be willing to look at what's right and examine the shadow. Yeah, I love that. Beautiful message. Thank you so much for sharing that. And for everyone listening, I genuinely genuinely encourage you to go and buy this book like I said it's one of the best books I've read in a long time I think Jeffrey brings such a a knowledge and a wisdom from all that you've done Jeffrey but also mm. the way that you can really translate that and make it express it in ways that are simple tangible heartfelt connected you know I connect mm. with the stories that you yeah. share and find meaning and truth in that and I think that's really really powerful and very memorable too so Yes, everyone listening, go and get yourself a copy. And Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you, Shannon, for having me. Thank you for the work that you do. 
And thank you to all of you listening. I hope that you found this episode inspiring, illuminating, thought-provoking. And just a final word on my part, well done. High praise to all of you for continuously choosing self-development and growth. I totally believe in all of you, in your ability to make change and our ability to make the world a better place.